Support for Distributed Dialogues comes from Accenture, applying blockchain innovations and innovators into health and life sciences to unlock growth and improve how the world works and lives. Accenture, where blockchain technology and healthcare is the new applied now. From the BTC headquarters in the Let's Talk Bitcoin network in Nashville, this is Distributed Dialogues, a podcast about the intersection of decentralized technology and how it affects the world around us. I'm David Hollerith. And I'm Graham Peterson. This episode is called Robot on My Shoulder. So in the last episode, Rick talked a lot about data. That word data, what the heck does it actually mean? Okay, so at least theoretically, everything in our world has some kind of data attached to it. The current level of precipitation in Timbuktu, 40%. The miles walked in Graham's favorite pair of tennis shoes, more than 900. In the age of my pet rock, Frankie, 1.6 billion years old. Yeah, Frankie's old. Of course, from an economic perspective, not all data is created equal. For instance, the raw information that we human beings give off about our buying history, our TV and movie preferences, the food we eat on a road trip, even the last time we got a flu shot, all has significantly higher value for businesses, at least more than the age of Frankie. So why do we need all this data? What can we do with it? Why are so many organizations, from government agencies to retail businesses and now medical centers, trying to get their hands on it? The simple truth is that whether data comes from a single individual or the combined pool of a larger population, it yields answers. And those answers can inform decisions that shape our world. The problem is, with so much data out there, there's just absolutely no perfect way for people to make use of all of it, or even collect it. We just haven't figured it out yet. That's why most industries, including healthcare, are beginning to rely on another emerging technology as a kind of key to unlock the greater potential of data. In this episode, we're exploring the technology that can use healthcare data in ways that our minds can scarcely imagine. I'm talking about artificial intelligence. Uh, Dave. If there's anything we've learned from movies, it's that we can't trust artificial intelligence. Remember that creepy robot from 2001, A Space Odyssey? Let me put it this way, Mr. Amer. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. You raise a good point, Graham. Artificial intelligence, more commonly known as AI, is a pretty polarizing topic. People usually fall into one or two camps. Either they're wildly optimistic about it or devoutly opposed. Guess which camp Elon Musk falls in. Here's a point he made in a documentary that aired earlier this year. At least when there's an evil dictator, that human is going to die. But for an AI, there will be no death. It will live forever. And then you would have an immortal dictator from which we could never escape. The reasons for why Musk and several other notable thinkers are weary of AI are often played out ad infinitum in sci-fi movies. Humans create intelligent machine. Machine helps human creator. Machine turns against human creator and sometimes enslaves them. So almost always in these movies, the helping comes first and things, well, they change. 
Like in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Like data, AI is a big term often misused that encompasses a whole assortment of ideas, research, and development. For this show, we'll just call AI the theory and development of computers able to perform tasks that normally require a human's level of intelligence. These tasks include visual perception, understanding human speech, competing at high-level strategic games like chess, and especially for its application to healthcare, the ability to analyze and draw conclusions from large, complex data sets. So hold on a second. Are we talking about computers that can just crunch a bunch of data? Or are we talking about robot surgeons and computers that can take care of grandma or deliver babies? All of it. In fact, professionals are contemplating how to use AI in just about every cognitive way we can envision. Even lawyers, like Larry. Uh, I've always been geeky, so I'm not the traditional lawyer in that regard. But as a lawyer for 40 years, I've seen technology assume a greater and greater role in the work that uh, lawyers should be doing and, frankly, the work that their clients expect them to be doing. So um, it was probably 10 years ago that I began to take a look at how the application of technologies for the benefit of efficiencies and price certainty could benefit both lawyers providing services and the clients that uh, use those services. Apart from lawyering, Larry Bridgesmith is an entrepreneur and adjunct professor at Vanderbilt University School of Law. Like most people we talk to on this show, he's smarter than us. Most of Larry's work focuses on consulting, training, and teaching people about how emerging technologies will, if they haven't already, change the legal business. He's spent a special amount of time learning about artificial intelligence, and he can break it down further. You can divide it in a number of ways, but the most commonly understandable fashion is to think of artificial intelligence in three tiers. The first tier is artificial narrow intelligence, A-N-I, which is artificial intelligence that's designed for a very unique purpose and trained on very specific data to provide something of utility to those who benefit from it. Think Siri, think Alexa. I mean, that's artificial narrow intelligence, meaning it can only do what it's programmed to do with the data it's been given. And technologists tell me that's pretty much all we've achieved so far. Now, there is a desire to achieve higher levels of in artificial intelligence, the next level being artificial general intelligence, meaning be equivalent to the functioning of the human brain, meaning multi-dimensional at simultaneous time and able to solve complex problems because it's capable itself of programming itself to solve those problems. We haven't achieved AGI. Now, there are a lot of people working very diligently to do so, and can I say it won't happen? I certainly can't. But the one I think we're most afraid of is artificial superintelligence. That's the third tier, and basically in which the machine is far more capable of logic and reasoning and research and analytics and decision-making than the entire human race. Well, I mean, that's where we get the Terminator stories and, you know, Space Odyssey and all of that sort of stuff. Well, that is so far out that if it is it achieved, it's far beyond my lifetime and probably yours as well. I sure hope so. 
So that's stepping the old AI overlord bit. From what we've gleaned publicly, the current development of AI is somewhere in between artificial narrow intelligence and artificial general intelligence. But these tiers continue to change. Scientist and author Douglas Hofstadter made a great point about this. AI, he says, is whatever has not been done yet. Douglas is being cheeky here. What he really means is once we achieve a tech innovation in AI, it's no longer considered AI. It's just some process a computer does. That's one reason why AI gives us the willies and makes us think of sci-fi flicks. It's a technological concept that holds some of our wildest imaginations about the future. For our purposes, we're talking about today's AI, narrow artificial intelligence, which you might know best as Apple's Siri and Amazon's Alexa. But copious amounts of companies employ AI, including Netflix, Pandora, Tesla, and Nest. These narrow AIs can be programmed to achieve some goal based on a narrow set of rules and the right data. But again, for an AI to do your bidding, or even a company's, it needs to run effective algorithms, and that requires mountains of good data. Here's neuroradiologist Dr. Alan Pitt giving his two cents. Clearly data is responsible to come up with better algorithms, so previous experience will lead to better outcomes moving forward. A new AI needs data the same way we humans learn from past experience. The more data at an AI's disposal, the more effective it can be at making decisions. I've spent the last 20 years of my career you know, in healthcare. When I started my career as a medical student, we used to have you know, reams of yellow paper that you used to write in the chart. And it was super interesting because you could always tell who was the most senior person on the medical team because their note was the shortest, like, this is what we're going to do. And the medical students started out and they had like 12 pages of like, this is what the patient presented with and this is what I'm thinking and these are the opportunities. And, and then the intern would be like half that length and then the resident would be half that still and then the attending would come by and it would be nothing. AI also needs the right kind of data the same way a medical student needs the right kind of education and training. The problem is... There's an innate trust factor associated with using AI. I mean, if there's anything we learn from Terminator, Dave, you can't trust Skynet. Once a person relies on an algorithm to make referential decisions or predictions, AI can influence the decision-making process. You know how Netflix recommends shows based on your viewing history? Over the holidays, my mom binge-watched an entire season of Down Abbey on my account. Now, every time I log in, I'm bombarded with new recommendations for British TV dramas. And I gotta admit, I've watched some Masterpiece Theater. It's not all that bad. This type of prediction-making tech is unquestionably brittle in its capacity to do its job when compared with the sci-fi supercomputers we all have nightmares about. And the wrong kind of output can just as easily come from altering data as it can from a programmer's lack of knowledge. Put in another way, when people rely on algorithms to perform complex and critical tasks accurately, there can be drastic and, yes, nightmarish consequences if something goes wrong. Here's Larry again. The trust factor has to do with, okay, who built the algorithm? Is that a, an algorithm that I can trust? And there's been enough evidence that, for example, in law, there have been some AI applications looking for criminal attributes that have proven to be very racially biased, not by intent, but simply by the lack of knowledge when the algorithm was created as to relevant data that it should be looking for. So you're absolutely right. There is an issue of trust. So in scenarios like these, who carries responsibility? Is it the human programmer who creates the algorithm? 
Is it the quality of the data set and whoever put that together? Or is it because we're expecting too much intelligence from a computer? A few years back, as an experiment, Microsoft unveiled a new AI chatbot for Twitter called Tay. The more you chat with Tay, said Microsoft, the smarter it gets, learning to engage with people through casual and playful conversations. Uh, delightful, but wait, cue the broadcast. The more you talk, the smarter Tay gets. Microsoft designed Tay's software to mimic the speech patterns of 18 to 24-year-olds. Tweet to Tay, and the bot tweets you back. But it did not take long for internet trolls to poison Tay's mind. Soon Tay was ranting about Hitler. One Twitter follower asking, did the Holocaust happen? Tay replied, it was made up. Within 24 hours of engaging with social media users, Tay adopted some of the worst speech in the internet's public sphere. So, have the bugs been fixed? If we still can't fully trust how artificial intelligence will interact in specific environments, what's the risk-reward in putting them to work? I don't know what they expected, Dave. The internet's not really the best place to learn casual conversation. When considering the stakes of unleashing an AI onto the world, we might also recall another story, Frankenstein. It's alive. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. To clear away some of this hocus pocus, we wanted to talk to somebody who has completed work for a PhD in artificial intelligence. Along with his ongoing research in AI, John Squayo is a principal director for technology strategy in healthcare at the consulting firm Accenture. There's obvious uh, opportunities for value in that computers have a better memory than humans. I think that's well established, that they can remember things more perfectly. Uh, the other component is, is they can run permutations of a problem a whole lot faster than the human brain has, has, uh, is created to do. How much faster? Research says if a doctor can make a single diagnosis for a patient in 10 minutes, an AI system can make a million in the same time. That might not be completely accurate, but it does seem ridiculously efficient. Here's John's explanation. Because we program and we create algorithms and we select which data will train the algorithm, we're introducing bias. At the same time, there's the opportunity to reduce bias because it's very, uh, very clear that many times clinicians will kind of get into a trend of doing a single therapy or a, a drug when they see a set of, uh, of symptoms or signs. And, you know, so there's a, they, they admit oftentimes there's recency bias. It's like, oh, I saw that recently. Here was the therapy I prescribed. When in fact, a machine might take a much broader and it's kind of a zero-based perspective at every single case. So what I think John is saying here is that we humans are biased. Artificial intelligence also carries bias, but of a different kind. This draws back to the optimistic thinking about AI. Yes, machines are biased, but this bias might ultimately be helpful in certain circumstances to offset our own. Let's take a step back here to look at one of the most notable problems facing the American healthcare system, rising cost. If there's one thing that our lawyer friend Larry is pretty darn certain of, it's that technology can upend the status quo by making things better, faster, cheaper. Why? Because that's just the way the world has always worked. Efficiencies have become the norm in the global economy. I mean, the global enterprise that does not use the tools of lean methodologies, project management, Six Sigma, is basically non-competitive. And as a result, they understand that always getting better, faster, cheaper 
is a mantra they must live by, and we've seen that by virtue of products and services over the last decade or even two decades have continued to cost less with greater quality as these methodologies have been applied to them. The outliers, and this is where my fascination with law and healthcare come in, frankly have been healthcare education and law, all of which have exceeded the gross cost of living index from 200 to 250% over the last two decades. While everything appears to be getting better, faster, cheaper, the cost of education, healthcare, and legal services has only increased. Why? Well, for starters, increasing efficiency and reducing costs has often come from removing human workers from the equation. We've heard of this before. Henry Ford did it back at the beginning of the 20th century. We call it automation. After the break, We'll hear from our speakers about how the rampant costs in healthcare will only worsen if something is not done. Also, Alan Pitt will tell us how AI might be able to improve healthcare by making it a bit more human. Stay tuned. BTC Inc. is excited to announce their upcoming Bitcoin 2019 conference in San Francisco, the annual event for the Bitcoin community. Dates are TBD, but you can follow the conference on Twitter at Bitcoin2019Conf. That's at Bitcoin2019CONF. You can also subscribe to receive the Bitcoin 2019 conference deck by visiting Bitcoin2019Conference.com. Again, that's Bitcoin2019Conference.com. Now, back to the show. So we left off with another buzzword that has been floating around the internet ether for the past few years, automation. Automation has become a word greatly valued and sought after by organizations trying to reduce their bottom line. At the same time, for the workforce itself, automation is frightening. It means change, the need to adapt, and in the worst sense, worker displacement or job loss. They take our job! They took our <laughs> even if using AI to automate jobs saves healthcare bucks, could it come at an even greater cost? Like law and education, the cost of healthcare has dramatically risen over the last several decades, and one major part of that are labor costs. But it seems like common sense that these industries would be difficult to automate. John Squayo can unwrap this problem further. We saw in the automotive industry that Henry Ford threw factory production was able to bring down the cottage industry of creating a car by a factor um, between 7 and 10 from how cars were originally manufactured. In fact, in healthcare, it's the exact opposite. We do a lot to patients. In fact, that happens in all over the world. Uh, our labor rates and our labor productivity um, are definitely a challenge, and they're particularly acute in this country. We have an aging population of nurses and physicians and not enough to replenish them. There's just more we can do to patients now with advanced therapies and advanced diagnostics. And in fact, those are advancing the end of life care opportunities, which actually can accumulate for the most spend in a patient's entire lifetime of healthcare costs. At this point in our conversation, John admitted that the best approach with applying technology to healthcare is to focus on the patient. We joked about robot surgeons in the beginning of the episode, but consider that reality for a moment. 
Let's say you have a parent or grandparent living in a retirement community. Would you mind if their home caregiver was a robot? How about when the cost of that robot caregiver is one-fifth that of the human caregiver? What then? If the thought of a robot taking care of your grandma is still a bit disconcerting, you're probably not in the minority. This goes back to the point Larry made about why healthcare and other industries like law and education are difficult to automate. These are industries where success rides on people interacting with other people. Even if AI can write your will, diagnose your fever, or teach high school level geometry, could these same services be done without the involvement of a person? Sure, it made a better, faster, cheaper pickup truck on the Ford assembly line, but is there a cost in removing people from these certain processes? When I brought up this point to Larry, he outlawed me a bit by flipping the problem of cost on its head. As has happened in healthcare, and it's still too costly, far too costly. You know, what would, what would happen if we took all the automation out of the delivery of healthcare services? The cost would even go higher. Touche, Larry. As it turns out, automation, whether we support it or not, is already beginning to change the legal services industry. Last year, the statistics suggest that some $10 billion of legal service fees, which were previously performed by law firms, are now being performed by, they call them legal process outsourcers or alternative legal providers. And these are businesses and entities, many of whom are, are using technology to make the, the sale and the delivery of those legal services more efficient. Most recently, we've been amazed at a, a Stanford undergrad computer science student named Joshua Browder, who created a app called Do Not Pay. And it was originally designed for parking tickets. And within a very short period of time, this app allowed people globe-wide to challenge their parking tickets and millions of dollars of fines were eliminated. Well, he's now converted that into a, a United States-based legal self-service system that regardless of your claim, regardless of the jurisdiction, you can process your own legal claims without the use of a lawyer. When I asked Larry if he was concerned about what kind of effect AI or automation in general could have on the practice of law, he surprised me again. Yeah, my argument is that it makes lawyers able to do more law, frankly, and work on more challenging uh, types of legal matters. The more we are caught up in the administrative end of delivering legal services, the less law we practice. So wherever there is a process that can be automated, it frees up a lawyer to do more law, to exercise the strategic thinking, the creativity and the empathy that are unique to humans, which frankly most people hope that they'll get when they retain a lawyer, is someone who understands their problem, helps them solve their problem as quickly and as cheaply and with the greatest degree of quality possible. The point of all of that is to say that artificial narrow intelligence, which I really wish we wouldn't call it artificial, I know we can't change it, I would prefer we call it augmented intelligence, is really a partner to people doing what needs to be done better, faster, cheaper. Now, to your point previously about trust, and if we have standards built so that a community of healthcare professionals, legal professionals, technologists, um, nation states 
can all agree on a set of elements that make it trustworthy, then I think we're moving in the right direction. And what I'm grateful for is that there are numbers of those bodies that are working really diligently in cross-disciplinary matters to, to create standards for artificial intelligence, blockchain, and other emerging technologies. Now, if you're thinking about the healthcare industry, what could an AI-human partnership look like? Alan Pitt insists that it might improve the next visit you have at your doctor's office. And I spend 12 minutes aggregating your data, talking to you, taking history and physical, doing all of those things. And I spend three minutes telling you what I found and what we're going to do. For the first 12 minutes, your doctor is busy in front of the computer filling out your electronic medical record, or EMR. They're attempting to string along small talk, looking back and forth between you and the computer screen, not paying a lot of attention, and you're sitting there on that tissue paper line exam table sick. You're given a diagnosis, a proposal for treatment, possibly another doctor's visit, more time waiting, and finally you're given the choice to either agree with the treatment or not. Alas, there's more to be desired in that scenario, and the root cause of that is how your doctor is expected to interact with your EMR while also supposedly interacting with you. Like many doctors, Alan has a conflicted relationship with the way he's expected to collect patient data via the EMR. He's even written a blog post about it. Why doctors seem to be ignoring you. They're playing a video game. As Alan Pitt explains in a blog post, both offer a series of clicks with an often maddening array of tasks to solve. There are templates to follow, boxes to fill in, and scoring. But unlike most video games, the points accrued in an EMR are real. They often translate into payment, real dollars, for either your doctor or the hospital. Though he recognizes the chance for something better, Alan's also weary of knocking the EMR too much. You can't evaluate paper. When I had to do research projects as a medical student, I used to go to the medical records and you'd have a huge cart which would take all the charts and you'd wheel them somewhere and you'd be peeling through these illegible medical records. It's simply not a way to do research. Certainly that has improved now where most of the data elements are put into the electronic medical record. EMRs also helped standardize the process for recording and updating healthcare data. Why is that important? Well, there is some truth to the joke about doctors having bad handwriting. Physicians have one of the most writing-intensive jobs around. Whatever is discussed between a doctor and patient behind closed doors has to be written down. If it's not documented, then it didn't happen. But you can't imagine during a single 10- to 12-hour shift the amount of errors, misspellings, and different terminology that could be thrown around by just a handful of doctors but now, as a kind of computerized data template, EMRs present a new problem for care, and well, Alan can say it best. The problem to date has been that we have the pendulum swung way over to the data repository. We as human beings now interact with the data repository. You know, we're, we're kind of documentarians instead of humanitarians, right? If you go to your doctor, he's sitting there typing away, documenting, the whole encounter rather than focused on you, uh, what's wrong with you, looking at your body habitus, looking at how anxious you are, all of the issues that really are involved in trying to make an accurate diagnosis and come up with a treatment, as well as build a relationship. And why exactly does having a relationship with your doctor have any significant gravity? Well, Alan says it makes for better outcomes, and you're already paying for it in more ways than one. 
my personal belief is that another drug, another surgery is not going to solve American healthcare, right? It's better conversation, more transparent conversation. And how we talk to each other results in a different course of action. In more sensitive healthcare scenarios, such as when someone believes they have cancer, Alan is adamant that doctors need more time to articulate the full cost they ask their patients to pay for healthcare. You're paying financially, right? You're, you've got insurance, hopefully, time. but you're paying in your time. You're paying in pain, right? Those things do not come without pain, right? Surgery, rehab, all of this. So there's this cost to you to get that treatment. But that's not really discussed a whole lot, right? They just say, we're going to do this thing. And as a physician, I'm here to cure you, right? So I'm all in about we should do this thing. But I never have a discussion with you about there's actually only a 78% chance that at the end of a year you're going to be cured. There's a 22% chance that you may not live at the end of the year. And oh, by the way, all that pain and suffering and you know all those costs that you endured for that year, well, they're gone because you're going to have to put them in and you may still not survive. But at its current standard, this conversation only involves roughly three minutes of a doctor's time. And on the flip side, many patients are already using Google's search engine, which is powered by another kind of AI, to answer those burning healthcare questions that come creeping outside doctor's hours. As Alan explains, people self-diagnosing with Google search are often left more anxious and confused than before. That's the same problem doctors are now facing, too much data. I think healthcare is number two behind sex uh, for search on the internet, something like that. So if you have a problem, what you do is you go to Google and you, you know, type in, you know, I've got indigestion or whatever it is, and you get reams and reams and reams of information, which is in no way personalized to who you are. And oftentimes when the patient comes to me, there are stacks of articles and hyperlinks and all sorts of stuff. So I have to talk them off the ledge and basically say, you know, it is possible that you have, you know, whatever, but it's not very likely. And why don't we move forward on what's likely and try to do that? So, you know, I always train my residents um, that you don't want to be right. You want to be reasonable because for a physician to be right means that a patient has to bear risk, worry, and cost. So for me to be right, I see some abnormality. You may have to get a biopsy. You're certainly going to think you have cancer until proven otherwise, and you're going to have to pay for all that medical care. And so you have to align all of those things in, in a way. But in terms of AI, getting back to the original thing, AI offers the opportunity for us to change our relationship to data and make it much more of a, of a symbiotic relationship instead of what we have today. If right is not the same as reasonable when considering healthcare costs, like lawyers and teachers, the human part of a doctor's job cannot simply be replaced by employing AI. However, Alan thinks using AI to augment a doctor's role might mean more time for a better conversation. So you convert that experience from a data capture person to where the AI kind of sits on your shoulder and is a bot, if you will, changing that experience. So I don't have to know everything all at once. The AI is supplementing that so that I have basically the world's knowledge about what's likely for this particular patient in front of me and probably what's not, right? Um, so that's super valuable. So if you present to a doctor and you're 65 years old and you're on these drugs and you have these other medical conditions, it basically says using predictive analytics and knowing uh, millions of people, I can expect that these are risk factors, other diseases that you may have that are comorbidities, co-conditions. Co and they basically alert the clinician as he's talking to this patient. 
hey, by the way, I know everything there is to know about this community, not sure about this patient, but there's a likelihood that they may have X, Y, Z. You should probably order these tests to work that up. Here are the billing codes. Would you like me to help you write the note? Let's go back to the 15-minute doctor's visit. Well, if you could flip that through AI or other ways to aggregate that data where I walk in, you've largely aggregated the data for me. I uh, ask you, are all of these things correct? Let me make sure that I understand this. So we spend three minutes data aggregating and 12 minutes in conversation. The likelihood of us building a relationship and having a better understanding of what to do next goes up dramatically. So maybe there's a way to use artificial intelligence to make healthcare a little bit cheaper. Maybe it can even make the 15-minute talk you have with your doctor a bit more meaningful. Remember, max efficiency, better, faster, cheaper, as long as it doesn't replace us, right? After all, AI is made up by circumstances, just like us, both in the way it was programmed and the data it takes in. So ultimately, the responsibility for creating AI, something possibly more efficient or more monstrous than ourselves, falls to us. As they say, trash in, trash out. On next week's episode, we'll be looking at how a different kind of trash accumulates along the pharma supply chain. That's right. We're talking about counterfeit drugs, reputations on the dark web, and how effective a blockchain would actually be for the pharmaceutical supply chain. Distributed Dialogues is a BTC media-produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Rick, Graham, and myself. Theme music provided by David Burgess. Additional music provided by Trent Eubin. Special thanks to Larry Bridgesmith, Alan Pitt, and Accenture. Visit letstalkbitcoin.com for more engaging podcasts. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at the LTB Network for all the latest news and episodes.